Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Every Square Inch, where we engage every square inch of God's world with God's worldview. My name is Robert Cunningham. We are in the middle of a series in response to the deconversion testimony of Rhett and Link. This is part three of what will be four parts. So if you haven't listened to the other two, I highly suggest you uh, pause this and go listen to those first. Just as a reminder, though, this is this is less about Rhett and Link and more about those who see themselves in Rhett and Link's story. I have wanted uh, to record for some time um, a an apologetic of sorts, I suppose, to uh, skeptics, to seekers, to unbelievers, certainly to those who have left the Christian faith. And uh, Rhett and Link, um, their story has given um, given a good entryway into that discussion because I was very impressed, quite honestly, not just with their story, but the way they shared their story. Um, so let me remind everyone how I'm approaching this without restating everything I said in the last episode. Truth, beauty, and goodness are known as the transcendent desires of humanity, the transcendentals. These greater pursuits, which only um, human beings, the Bible would say only image bearers, pursue. According to Christian theology, God is the ultimate end of these pursuits, the ultimate source of truth, beauty, and goodness. And then, in the conviction that God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ, we find in Jesus the living embodiment of truth, beauty, and and goodness. So my contention is that the best apologetic for the Christian faith is Jesus, Jesus himself. Is Jesus true? Is Jesus beautiful? Is Jesus good? At the end of the day, people embrace or reject Christianity depending upon their answer to those questions. But my contention is that when you behold Jesus, not his followers, mind you, I freely admit we're a bunch of knuckleheads um, who don't do the best job representing Jesus. But when you behold Jesus, when you cut through all the noise, all the preconceptions, all the bias, and just reckon with Jesus, I believe what you will find is truth, beauty, and goodness. Now, the reason why Rhett left the faith seemed to be an issue of truth, and that's what I dealt with in the last episode. But the reason why Link left the faith seemed to be more about beauty. Uh, Link spoke about emotions more than doubts, though doubts certainly played a part. But more than truth, Rhett talked about guilt, uh, shame, uh, burdens, self-hatred over his performance, or more specifically, his lack of performance. He also talked about wanting to be stirred and moved deeply in the same way that beauty should stir and move us. But he just couldn't find that experience. He couldn't conjure up that experience that only beauty can provide. And what I'm trying to say is that issues like this are issues with Christianity's beauty. And Link articulated, um, courageously articulated um, with his words, why indeed religion and religious culture can be downright ugly, not beautiful, but ugly. Now, what I want, don't want to say to Link or anyone who sees themselves in Link's story, and I think probably more people see themselves in Link's story than Rats, but what I don't want to say is this. Well, you just didn't get it. To use Christian language that's f- familiar to 
our subculture, you just didn't get the gospel. If you just, quote unquote, got the gospel, you would see how beautiful it is. So what you need is just a good dose of gospel teaching. So let me explain the gospel to you again. That's not true. That's not helpful. I know for a fact that Link has read the gospel stuff. He's listened to gospel-centric preaching for many years. And there are many people who have been discipled in the gospel's beauty, who could articulate the gospel's beauty, who have discovered Christianity to be downright ugly. And here we come to an important critique and something that we need to learn from Rhett and Link's story. They are right in this critique. It's one thing to preach Jesus. It's another thing to practice Jesus. So many evangelical churches and ministries proclaim the gospel of Jesus, with, which I think is the most beautiful news ever told. And yet when you examine the culture and ethos of the community, it is utterly void of the gospel. So, for example, if you tell people there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, within a culture of condemnation, they are going to believe the culture more than your words. You can tell people they don't have to perform to be accepted and loved by God. You can tell people that Christianity isn't a religion where you, where you have to perform uh, to be loved by God, but then create a burden culture of religious performance, and again, the culture will be believed more than your words. So it's not whether Link and those like him got the gospel. It's whether they experienced the gospel. And unfortunately, within evangelicalism, many experience an oppressive religion all the while hearing about a free gospel. And it's not beautiful. It's ugly. And I don't blame them for leaving it behind. So first and foremost, I want to say this week to Link and those who see themselves in Link's story, I'm sorry. On behalf of Christianity in general, and I must say evangelical Christianity in particular, I'm sorry that we proclaim and teach something that is beautiful in theory, but discredit our proclamation with a culture that can be downright ugly in practice. But again, what about Jesus? I've said this many times, and I'll say it again. I cannot commend myself or any other follower of Jesus. In fact, I'm apologizing for us. Instead, my only commendation is the Jesus we follow. And when you look at Jesus himself, my contention is we discover beauty in its highest form. What makes something beautiful? This is a notoriously difficult question to answer philosophically speaking. Beauty is both objective and subjective. It certainly does have an objective component. Most specifically, if it's not true or it's not good, then it's not beautiful. And that's why part of the beauty of Jesus is found in the other transcendentals that I've been discussing, his truth and his goodness. But beyond that, there is certainly an objectiveness to beauty. Um, on, a date light, on a date night last week, my wife and I both tried to recreate the Mona Lisa. We had this little competition where we each had a half hour to sketch the Mona Lisa. Now, if you looked at the Mona Lisa and then you looked at our sketches of the Mona Lisa, it is objectively true. It is a fact that Da Vinci's Mona Lisa is more beautiful than Cunningham's Mona Lisa. 
That is an objective truth. And yet beauty also has a subjective component. For example, I have seen the Mona Lisa in person with my wife. And while I certainly recognized its beauty, I didn't, I wasn't moved like my wife was moved, who appreciates the beauty of art more than I do. But at the same time, we are currently uh, making our way through the Michael Jordan uh, documentary series. And while she gets that there's something beautiful about Jordan as an athlete, she is not moved by the documentary like I am as someone who loves the beauty of athletics. So beauty is both objective and subjective. But there are two things that I believe ultimately set the standard by which we measure beauty. Two things that if, if one or both of these certainly are true, then we deem something beautiful, and it's uniqueness and love. When I say uniqueness, take the two examples I just used. Why is the Mona Lisa beautiful? Art critics will tell you that there's nothing like it. Why is Michael Jordan's athleticism beautiful? There's nothing like it. How do you define beautiful music, a beautiful film, beautiful architecture, beautiful nature, whether it be the Grand Canyon or the ocean, beautiful anything? It's very simple. That which uniquely stirs you into that unique confession, I've never seen anything like that before. Well, consider Jesus of Nazareth. What is it about this man? and what I contend to be his undeniable beauty? Well, I think he is beautiful because he is true, like we discussed last week, and because he is good, like we will discuss next week. But outside those foundational standards of beauty, there is this. When you behold Jesus in comparison to the landscape of all religions and religious claims, you come away with this conclusion, I've never seen anything like this before. Allow me to take some time here to show you the beauty of Jesus by showing you the uniqueness of Jesus. I have 10, that might scare you, but 10 very brief ways that Jesus is unique. One, while others spoke on God's behalf, Jesus spoke on his own behalf. You see, every religion is simply, is essentially a revelation. And in this way, the founder of a religion first and foremost claims to be a prophet. They have received a special, special message or insight that they then deliver to others. In other words, they claim to speak on God's behalf. Jesus certainly was a prophet, but his prophetic ministry had a subtle uniqueness that sets him apart. He spoke on his own authority. He didn't claim to have received a message from God. He claimed to be the author of the message, God incarnate. The flavor of Jesus' teachings was not truly God has revealed to me to say unto you. It was truly I say unto you. There is a huge difference between thus saith the Lord and thus I say. No other religious founder dare use the latter, but Jesus unashamedly did. Second, while others claimed to have discovered the way, Jesus claimed to be the way. Not only does every religious founder claim to have a revelation, they, they claim that their revelation is the fix, is the cure. That is essentially what religions are. They are a way to solve humanity's most fundamental dilemmas. The different ways of religion vary, but they all are proposed solutions to resolve humanity's greatest needs. Now, Jesus does the same, but his way is unique. He is the way. 
He did not come to offer a system to follow. He came to be a savior to embrace. So what makes Jesus unique is that his answer to all of humanity's fundamental needs, his answer to our salvation is found not in his religion, but in himself. Indeed, he is our religion. Third, while others left writings, Jesus left witnesses. Every substantial religion has sacred texts, and those texts are the recorded revelations of the founder. This typically makes the difference between a small cult following that anybody with charisma can form and a religion that endures. Sacred writings from the founder become the means for the religion to be passed on for generations to come. Now, what is interesting about the Bible is that Jesus didn't write a word of it. That is so significant. In the same way Jesus viewed himself as the authority and himself as the way of salvation, he also viewed himself as his own enduring revelation. Jesus didn't leave us his writings to ensure his legacy would carry on. He called to himself witnesses to testify about him. And these inspired testimonies from multiple witnesses were canonized as our scripture. Jesus didn't leave us his words. He is the word. Jesus didn't write a book. He is what the book is written about. Fourth, while others gathered the likely, Jesus gathered the unlikely. So speaking of witnesses, if you study the life of major religious uh, figures, the movement always begins with the founder's family, close friends, and those most like the founder. Now that's not a coincidence. Uh, One would assume that those closest to you would be the easiest to convince or manipulate, and skeptics of religion are right to point out this convenient fact when it comes to Muhammad or Joseph Smith, for example. One of the most fascinating aspects of Jesus, however, is that strangers were his early followers. He would walk up to seemingly random people and say, follow me, and they would actually do it. They would leave everything and follow this man. Some were wealthier, some were poor, some were educated, some couldn't read, some were powerful, some were outcasts. And this band of diverse misfits became his early following. That is astounding, religiously speaking. And even more amazing is that the central figure of Christianity's birth and development was Jesus's earliest and fiercest enemy, the Apostle Paul, Paul went from attempting to destroy Christianity to being the very person to catalyze Christianity. This is unheard of in the early stages of religious development. But again, Jesus is unique. Fifth, while others were product of culture, Jesus was counterculture. Um, religion, religious skeptics are correct to point out that religions seem to be merely the outworking of culture and context meaning you have a gifted, charismatic leader combined with a cultural context that is ripe for his message and out comes a new religion. For example, deep unrest and discontentment existed within the disordered, wicked, oppressed, polytheistic Arab world when Muhammad proclaimed his strict, moralistic, revolutionary, monotheistic religion. Or the Second Great Awakening in America was marked by sensationalism, emotionalism, and uninhibited religious fervor. And it offered the perfect climate for the eccentric Joseph Smith 
to sell the extravagant and outlandish claims of Mormonism. But Jesus is clearly not the outworking of a sociological equation. He was anything but the product of his times. He offended the Romans in his brazen defiance of Caesar. He disappointed the Jews in his indifference to their messianic expectations. He pushed back on cultural trends and norms in the way he treated women, outcasts, the oppressed. And every time they tried to turn him into a popular, revolutionary cultural hero, he refused their efforts. Simply put, sociologically speaking, he made no sense. When you consider the first century context of his day, his movement should never have worked. And yet it did. Jesus is unique in that he defies all the normal religious predictors. Six, while others were private, Jesus was public. Another suspicious fact about other religions is that the central claims and miracles always seem to occur in private, whether it's being visited by an angel in a dream, going into a cave to hear from God, discovering golden tablets that need to be translated in secret. The alleged supernatural always happens in private without witnesses, and then what happens in private is taken public by the prophet, asking people to just trust him that he has received something miraculous. Very convenient. In contrast, Jesus did everything in public. Crowds were constantly following him. He could not escape them. And all his great words and deeds, yes, his miraculous deeds, were performed before many witnesses. Even the central miracle and foundational claim, his resurrected body, was seen by over 500 witnesses. The public nature of Jesus' ministry and miracles is utterly unique. 7. While others indulged early earthly rewards, Jesus renounced them. If you look at the founders of other major religious movements or just your run-of-the-mill cult leader, the one thing they all have in common is an unhealthy lust for worldly pleasure. Whether it be an irrepressible sexual appetite or thirst for power and fame or narcissistic control or insatiable greed, when you study the biographies of these founders, they are clearly replete with ulterior motives. Uh, I, I was watching the Waco series on Netflix about David Koresh's cult recently, and the FBI negotiator that worked with David Koresh had this great quote. He said, Why is it that the prophecy of all these supposed prophets always involves women sleeping with the prophet? <laughs> He's exactly right. But consider the life of Jesus. Refusing riches, treating women with the utmost dignity and reverence rather than objects of his own sexual gratification, pushing back against all popularity, trying hard to keep his fame from spreading, never abusive, never manipulative, never exploitive, nothing but love and justice. I've heard a lot of arguments against Jesus, but I have never heard someone question the character of Jesus because his character is uniquely beautiful. Eight, while others make sense, Jesus makes no sense. Religions may differ on the surface to, and, and seem to be um, very different, but in reality, they are all different takes on the same 
idea. There is a system to follow, tenets to keep, philosophy to embrace, commands to obey, and if you um, do these things, you will be rewarded, and if you don't, you will be punished. This kind of karma system of rewards and punishments is how our world operates. It makes complete sense. And if I were to create a religion, I am sure it would end up looking something like that. But when you consider the message of Jesus, the central proclamation of Jesus, it does not make sense. Grace is at the heart of his message, and grace is at best confusing and at worst scandalous. You don't earn anything. You don't do anything. You don't achieve anything. Jesus does it all on your behalf. The founder of Christianity doesn't tell you what to do, but instead does everything for you. Of course, Christianity brings about change, but change, the change is different than conventional religious change. Every other religion says you obey to be accepted. And that's why, quite frankly, a lot of religions are really good at cleaning people up. If you have to obey to be accepted, you better obey. Jesus says, I accept you, therefore obey. And this subversive idea of religion doesn't make sense. But I would suggest that it only makes sense that the true divine revelation would not make sense to human imagination. His claim is unique. Nine, while others impact history, Jesus shapes history. Without a doubt, the most significant people of human history have been religious figures. Men like Buddha and Muhammad have shaped entire countries and cultures to this day, but they are not the most significant person in history, not even close. Jesus changed all human history. In fact, it would appear that that history is all about Jesus. He claimed to be the fullness of time, and that is a claim he lived up to. All Jewish history, the most ancient monotheistic religion, all Jewish history points to him, and all history since his arrival has been in response to him. Simply put, he is literally the tipping point of human history and civilization. Most remarkable of all is that he had no credentials of greatness. He was poor, uneducated, non-political, didn't leave writings, and constantly pushed back on popularity. His public ministry only lasted three years, and then he was put to death by capital punishment in the most shameful way. How is it possible for a man like this to become the most influential figure of all time? One reason alone. Number 10, others are dead. Jesus is risen. I'm not going to rehash my podcast, Defending the Resurrection. You can go listen to it for yourself. It's entitled Risen. But suffice to say, there has never been a more unique or significant claim in human history, and history points to the fact that he actually pulled it off. And so when we behold these ten reasons, and I could give you many more, I come away saying, I just can't get past Jesus. I've never seen anything like him. The world has never seen anything like him. He is utterly unique, and his uniqueness is breathtakingly beautiful. There is no story more beautiful 
There is no claim more beautiful. There is no promise more beautiful. There is nothing the world has ever seen like Jesus of Nazareth, which makes him the most beautiful thing this world has ever seen. And yet here is what is crazy about the beauty of Jesus. There is nothing beautiful about him at all, at least by the world's standards. Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus defies conventional beauty. Born in a lowly manger, no wealth or possessions, not even a place to lay his head at night. He would be known for his association with the marginalized, the disgraceful, the ugly. Touching the leprous, befriending the tax collectors, welcoming the prostitute. He would kneel before his disciples and assume the duties of a household slave by washing their feet. They didn't wash his feet, he washed their feet. He would be mocked and tortured and hung from a gory cross, clothed in the refuse of humanity's sin and shame. The sight is unbearably ugly. The ugliest moment the world has ever known. And yet the cross has become our symbol of beauty. Why? Because the ugliest moment the world has ever known was simultaneously the greatest act of love the world has ever known. Remember, there are two things that make something beautiful, uniqueness and love. Right now, I'm looking at some of my children's artwork. As we speak, it's on my desk. And I got to be honest with you, it ain't pretty. No museum would accept it, but it's going to my refrigerator door. Because to me, it's beautiful. Why? Because it bears the power of love that transforms anything into a beautiful thing. Spouses who've been married 50 years look into the aged, wrinkled face of their lover and see beauty because of love. The face of a cleft lip, cast off orphan is beautiful in the eyes of adoptive parents because of love. An ugly family keepsake passed down through generations that is worth nothing to the world but is priceless to you because of love. Love, my friends, can make anything beautiful, even a mangled, bloody Savior hanging from Golgotha's cross. Friends, there is nothing like Jesus. He is utterly unique in so many ways, but ultimately, he is unique in his love. The world has never known someone like this, but even more, the world has never known love like this. He is beautiful. But at the end of the day, I still recognize that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I can't force anyone to see how beautiful Jesus is. Everyone must see it for themselves. But if beauty is in the eye of the beholder, then at least behold him. Behold his uniqueness. Behold his love. And answer this, is what you behold not beautiful? Thanks for listening, friends. Lord willing, we will discuss the goodness of Jesus on next week's episode of Every Square Inch.